The squirrel was magic. Where your human heart. This is a Diabolical Index for June 3rd, 2019, where the pages of the uncanny reside. As always, I'm Corey Dawson, coming from Moreland Manor, I think I called it. The uh, the new home after uh, the much the much missed and respected loss of the nut house. But hey, we're doing good here. I got this cool bookcase behind me, give me a little bit of uh, legitimacy where once there was none. But hey, uh, I uh, hopefully I'm all there tonight. It's uh, it's been a little bit of a harrowing day. But um, speaking of harrowing days, uh, June 26th, 8 p.m. at the Kettletop Brew House in uh, was that Anderson, Indiana? Anderson, Indiana. Check out the Kettletop Brew House. Uh, I will be getting together with uh, some of the fellows from Pointless Discussions, uh, Juice in the Morning, and I thought there was someone else. Maybe it's just us. 
Pointless discussion is juice in the morning and the diabolical index will be coming to whoever shows up uh, to the Kells Hop Brew House in Anderson live with a strange mixture of improv comedy, uh, choose your own adventure. There'll be prompts. I'm sure that the audience will be picking uh, which way we go, kind of akin to what we do here on the non-entries on Mondays occasionally, uh, where people make the decisions for us. So that should be interesting. I'd be really surprised if anything like that had happened at that place before. But you never know. I'm not sure. Did you get that up there, man? Okay, cool. Yeah, as you can see, um, Justin from Oh Yeah, Dig It podcast made a, a really a really awesome uh, representation of a Choose Your Own Adventure, old school Choose Your Own Adventure cover uh, for the poster. Hopefully I'll be getting one of those posters uh, soon. But um, I have to say, <laughs> I can definitely tell it's me. Um, my The look on my face, it's there's a smugness to it. There's a little bit of an otherworldliness to it. But the, uh, <laughs> it's unmistakably me though. And it's great because, uh, I'm wearing a button up shirt. I look a little bit more, um, dapper than I normally do. Uh, my guess is I've got a few photographs up of, um, of Mel and Lucy and I at a, uh, a wedding reception. So I'm betting that's probably where the reference came from on that, but it, it looks really interesting. And, uh, I love it that, uh, Hevskabenezer, or whatever the name of the squirrel with the uh, uh, the warlock's cap on, uh, is, is in the center there, and it looks awesome. So, uh, I guess I, I guess that I'm considered the host of this stuff, but I'm sure I'll be getting on the hijinks and in more ways than one, and um, imbibing of the the milk of human kindness and probably the the pig swill uh, of, of the well drinks. So we'll see. I'm not sure. I've never been to that place before, but apparently juice uh, is real, real good in with those people. So we'll see what happens. It would be awesome if uh, someone made a huge mistake and thought we were celebrities. That'd be pretty cool. But anyway, June 26th. It's a Wednesday, 8 p.m. at the Kells Hot Brew House, Anderson, Indiana. Be sure to uh, check that out. Okay, so tonight, basically, um, I was going. I was going over the book that I had, I had started reading a book, um, a few weeks ago and it's called, you got book cam? It's called little heaven. You listening? No. Okay. Little heaven by Nick Cutter. There are a few people that are pretty pumped that I was doing another Nick Cutter novel, uh, after the troop. And uh, I'd have to say I was, I was not disappointed. Um, there are a lot of things that can be said about this, this book. And I kind of combed a lot of reviewers, a lot of analysts when it came to, uh, Nick Cutter's work. It seemed like they, they hearkened back to the troop. Um, and I think his other one, I want to call it the deep, but there's a Peter Benchley novel by that name as well. But his book is about the Mariana Trench or something. And I haven't read that one. But they kind of um, describe Little Heaven as a growth, like an evolution of his writing from those two books, but um, mostly in the uh, in the realm of gross-out horror, things like that. And he hasn't lost that in this book um, as much as it's been refined. There isn't a whole lot of um, 
blatant gross-outs in the book. Uh, but it doesn't fail to to uh, sink into the gruesome from time to time. But in this book, and what kind of uh, inspired me to do the topic tonight was... Um, I had read a, a few articles a couple of years ago about how there there has been a... Uh, probably in the last 30 years or so, there has been this tendency to discount action like scenes of action and horror scenes of detection scenes of um kind of not necessarily like the the mob with torches but more like um people going after the supernatural uh almost to be fought like it's a like a battle like as if humans uh stood a chance against the supernatural and in the 70s, uh, I think is kind of when that kind of came to a head and, and, and rolled back when it comes to the prevalence of it. It definitely hasn't stopped. Action and horror is kind of uh, what this made me think of um, due to the kind of like the framework of the way it's set up. They're kind of, um, well, I'll, I'll just get right to it. Basically, uh, the book, I almost said the movie. I I can see why that would happen because the the book is very cinematic. I could see this, and I may have mentioned it before in an episode. I wasn't talking about the book for the episode, but it may have come up because in this book, uh, definitely, you could almost um, take it directly off the page and and put it into a cinematic. Um, I mean, you would all you could all you could call it is like a tapestry because. Um, and this has been kind of a uh, point of contention for a lot of reviewers. They've said that there are a lot of things, you know, weaved in and out of the book. And uh, and every every book, every movie, television show um, that's kind of occurred in the 21st century, there's there's such a rise of uh, of nostalgia, and I guess adults being uh, more much more comfortable looking back to their childhoods. Um, to what they what they liked then the kind of television shows cartoons different comics and different things that they've gotten into uh in their youth there's much more of a uh, an understanding about keeping that well into your adulthood and in some cases it's uh kind of become a subject of of scrutiny when it comes to like toxic fan bases and whatnot not wanting to ruin our childhoods and stuff i'm gonna take a look over here let's see um uh-oh, got the the Wikipedia up there. Everybody's uh, getting their... <laughs> they're getting their rations ready for, I, I guess, when the drinking begins. I'm not sure, but uh, there's been a little bit of a, a habit with with checking for, for keywords and, and phrases to, uh, to tip that bottle back. But uh, let's see here. Josh DeForge, thanks for stopping by, man. Um... I will be looking forward to to getting with you about that project we talked about, mysterious. Yeah, Josh DeForce from Running uh, Running Scare Motion Pictures and I we've been talking about maybe working on something together pretty soon. So, thanks, Josh. Um, anyway, sorry, my allergies are acting up. Um, but not to get too far off topic. Basically, with Little Heaven, um. It reminds me so much of a lot of the '90s, um, basically horror with uh, 
I guess you could say horror with human enemy or horror with um, with the search, uh, a human on the search of horror uh, in, in the everyday world and things like that. Um, Little Heaven begins with kind of a, a more recent look at three the three protagonists, uh, Micah, Ebenezer, and Minerva. They're... There are great names throughout, and I'm going to get to kind of I want to get to that as we go along. But basically, what we're seeing here is uh, three broken down, flawed, stained, um, changed characters. You see them kind of at their their worst, or in some cases, kind of like their um kind of like the receding years, like the eroding years of their skill, which is to say they're all assassins. All three of them have made money from killing people for one reason or another, mostly without uh, any sort of emotional investment or uh, vengeful attitude, things like that. They've they've done it for the money and without a whole lot of uh, moral compunction, but uh, they have paid the price. And at this point, we don't know how they've uh, they've paid the price. Um, Mr. Goalie, thanks for stopping by. Um, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll have. Yeah, he he's talking about kind of like the western, um, the western, and. Um, personal meaning of the name to him and how it how it uh goes into kind of like the western motif and stuff when it comes to Micah the name Micah for I mean I guess you could say that Micah is kind of like the the heart of the group I guess you'd say um although there there's very little heart when it comes to uh dealing death between these three but like I said it begins in 1980 it shifts from 1980 to 1965 and back again a few times. Um, but this is the aftermath 15 years later from a turning point and a moment of truth in their lives. And, uh, for one, for whatever reason in, uh, in Micah's case, he has started a family and, you know, it's kind of argued in, in the story that maybe it was a little bit too late and kind of like the, uh, the older, reclusive millionaire in the uh the philip marlowe story he kind of says that any any you know paraphrasing but any problems that arise from having children so late in life he uh he says are all his his fault but um basically this is a story of something returning to settle the score and in this case uh, it falls on Micah's daughter, Pet, who is lured from his home into into the weeds and then further into the forest, which is where the dark things go. So in her case, she comes face to face with um, something that her father knows all too well. And it's something that no one could possibly describe, but um, but Nick Cutter does a pretty damn good job at it. And um, the prologue, I uh, I hesitate to mention the prologue. It doesn't 
mention any characters that we get to know, but it does mention uh, kind of like the the way that the darkness operates in the story. And I'd have to say it 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 took me by the neck right away and didn't let go. So we see that Micah's daughter becomes uh, ensnared in the demons of his past. And he's left with a, with a victory, but it's a bitter victory in that uh, his daughter is nowhere to be found after the meeting. And he does, uh, does kind of come upon what could be responsible. And, uh, and the meeting is, is something that he's known was going to happen for a while. So it's not so unexpected that he's not ready. He, um, he goes into the barn to find the implements of, of his past life, uh, pretty easily. So well, let's see, let's see what the, uh, the words are tonight. Prologue darkness drink let's see okay so oh boy there we go there are all kinds of buzzwords tonight anyhow uh the second protagonist i guess you'd say there are terms for all these things when there are multiple protagonists uh there are different terms for them they're they're pretty cool i don't know all of them hopefully one of these days i will but i love learning in fact i learn every day i walked in here tonight and and i found out about a a guy who does puzzles on uh, on the internet, almost like an unboxing, but he he talks about puzzles and cards. I guess he's a magician of sorts too. So you're always learning stuff. Anyhow, um, the second character of note is uh, Minerva, who we find in a bar, which is uh, according to her own statements, that's kind of where she normally ends up. It's to forget. And it keeps it keeps uh, mentioning something that they'd all rather forget, and it shows them at the kind of in the in the gutters of their lives due to something that w- would have happened. But we don't know all that stuff yet. And normally, I'm not a gigantic uh, I'm not a gigantic fan of of constant um, flash forwarding, flat you know flashbacks. But in this case, it. Uh, it's really super finely tuned. I really, I really enjoyed it a lot, and, and to me, it didn't, um, it didn't stumble. It, um, it was really super smooth. So, in this case, we see her uh, kind of wondering how she should go about her her life and dealing with society when she could just as easily, you know, snuff them all out like candle wicks. But she can't or doesn't and has, but um, sooner or later, something that um, that wears a badge or draws a gun will at least put her in an inconvenience because um, there is a, a an inkling that she brought something back f- from this time and this um, conflict that may not give her the... Uh, the peace of death. She, she talks about, you know, maybe not wanting that last resurrection. It's very, it's, it's super mysterious and it's kind of vague, but no, nowhere near so vague as to not catch your attention. 
And so she she goes through her normal routine and she ends up uh, crossing uh, crossing paths with others uh, in that line of work that uh, that she still does from time to time. And it kind of becomes almost like a challenge. You come across this uh, this old dog and somehow they they still manage to find new tricks when it comes to death. So that's where we we're kind of touching on all these people showing what has come after uh, what they thought was the final conflict and not, you know, never so much as with Ebenezer, who is uh, used to be known as the whispering death, but uh, he's, he's now known as uh, Gardner. I believe he doesn't go by his real name in the small town. He just does odd jobs and hides in plain sight as a, a British speaking black man in the eighties um underestimated uh by the town and no one could guess where he he had come from and what he had done especially as we're to find out in 1965 where all three of these characters find themselves in a stable and some have been brought there by money some have been brought by um contract by obligation to the to the craft to the um, to the employer, and some are there for for all kinds of reasons, including all of those, and not without a pinch of uh, revenge. So, um, Micah, who tends to be kind of like the not necessarily the conscience, the conscience isn't the the best word for, it, but I guess kind of like the head scout in later times. Uh, he happens upon these, these people and it turns out that one is there to kill the other and one is there to kill one and the other, and it just ends up being this triangular gun, gunfight. And, uh, Micah had worked for a, a drug dealer and it was another one of those, uh, those things where he didn't, uh, he didn't quite see it so far as to leave until he saw kind of like the the result of drugs on a pregnant mother the the mother had brought her child with her to get more um more drugs from things named seaberry and as soon as Micah sees that he's on the way out so um then he's marked and they're all marked in one way or another and basically they all get gunned down in one way or another and end up in the hospital together. And it's, it's one of those weird contradictions in, uh, in the criminal justice system, at least in like books and movies. I don't know how true this really is, but it seems like in most of these things, they want you well and able to stand on your own two feet before they kill you. Um, so in this case, you got a, <laughs> a hospital ward full of uh, killers. So, they're all just kind of like on the mend and uh, throughout this battle, uh, Micah has lost an eye. So he ends up being that, uh, that eye patched, you know, squint eyed loner who ends up, uh, it's, it's one of those, those stories that often happens where you have three loners, you know, traveling together. So 
they basically all realize that the only way out of this thing, seeing as how they're all, you know, cooped up in this hospital and they're, they're wounded for, for better or worse. And, um, they realize that they could go to like federal prison. Some of them could go, um, to the chair or to the, the gas chamber or what have you. So they decide to get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Gullen knows what's up. Um, so they decide to make their escape, uh, helping each other. And it, it's one of those wonderful things where you see these truly, uh, heinous characters that you don't necessarily like for, you know, for what they are, but you see how they interact with each other and they, they just become uh, really charming and interesting and exciting and, um, and curious characters. So, um, they, I mean, I, I can't, every, every time I think about the book, I, I can't help, but, uh, think how awesome it would be to see a bunch of these as, as scenes in a film or to see it in comic book form. In fact, there's, um, there's some really great illustrations. I'm not, I'm not quite sure who does the illustrations in here. They're not, t- there aren't tons of them, but, uh, the ones that do exist, let me see here. I got to find one. Uh, it, it makes me think of, um, of a comic, how great it would be if, if, the if there was a comic here. So like, let's see. Hired gun. I believe that's Minerva right there. So, um, this it just this scene is just so clear in my mind of the three bleeding assassins who are in hospital smocks, or in some cases they've made bandages out of sheets, um, bleeding riding horses they've stolen in into the into the dust and it's been referred to am i straight up or to the side now here okay okay (laughs) he points at both of them normally and i don't know which one he's talking about but anyway um they refer to as a horror western and i can see that i can definitely see how you would get kind of the uh, the flavor of the Western from it because they're all, they're all three gunslingers and they're, they're hard, they're hard bitten, hard scrabble down their luck. And it mostly takes place in, in New Mexico and around those areas. So I can definitely see that. I, I think that calling it a Western is, um, is tonal. I think that the tenor of it is definitely a Western type. Uh, you have revenge, you have, um, someone who, Basically, okay, so we'll get to that. I don't want to spoil too much of it. I've, I've told you a lot already, but uh, one thing that definitely um, shows up in this, and it's been a lot of reviewers have complained, which is really interesting to me. I'm not exactly sure what they want out of a, out of a book, but they basically said that the, um, the characters, you know, damn those characters, they're so three-dimensional that, I don't know, it takes away from the story. It's like... What are you talking about? But any, anyhow, I guess it, it comes down to if someone is um, reviewing a horror book, maybe that's 
that's all they want out of it, is just a sheer horror of everything. When I would venture to say that most of the most potent uh, horror that I can think of has everything to do with the re- relatability and the uh, recognizability of the characters. So it's really strange that uh, that they would go in that direction. But it is absolutely true. The, the characters are incredibly well flushed out, um, which is really strange also. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, Mr. Gully's talking about Billy Kidd versus Dracula. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm... There are definitely a lot of movies that I want to touch on, too. I, I try to do it in a minimum. But with this, the horror western has definitely existed for a long time, uh, back even to like Robert E. Howard days and stuff like that, before that, the pulps. But um, when it comes to this, I think the most important part is the interaction between these three characters and what happens when, um, in kind of a serendipitous thing they end up hanging together for a while just due to circumstance you know trying to to make money here or there or whatever and they figure they can do it better as a team especially since most of them are still uh healing from their wounds and whatnot but they get contact or they actually get almost ambushed by uh ellen and she's a uh I think she might be a clerk somewhere. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, there, there are actually a lot of characters that get uh, get some pretty decent backstory. So uh, forgive me about Ellen. But basically, um, I think her name's like Clear Clearwater. That's another thing with the names. Uh, the names I said I wanted to get back to it. The names are definitely uh, Bellhaven. Ellen Bellhaven. So there are these incredibly, um, I don't want to say complex names, but it, you're not dealing with John Smith's. Everybody's name is really illustrious sounding. And in a lot of ways, um, no, I'm not wearing pants. If that's your question. If we want to be specific about things, no, I'm not wearing pants. But I mean, it's one of those, it's, it's a freeing thing. When you have a when you're sitting at a table and no one would ever see, uh, why not? You know, uh, I've seen Commando, but anyways, back on topic. Um, Ellen uh, hires these this raggedy uh, trio to help her find uh, her nephew, who has been kind of sucked into the clutches of this religious utopia called little heaven and little heaven itself. That also kind of brings to mind, uh, the Western because you have this, uh, kind of like village or collection of souls on the outskirts who are trying to find a, a utopia in this, uh, in this horrifically, modern and sinful land so they uh they make it out there by what used to be called devil's rock which is this monolithic black rock by near this forest and he makes his church and by he i mean the reverend amos 
Flesher. So you, there's no doubt as to who the whole place is full of villains, but in this case, Amos Flesher is your villain. And it's, uh, it's totally difficult to say Flesher rather than Fletcher. That's okay. In this case, he deals in the flesh and on the way to little heaven, our heroes, I'm, I don't want to say anti-heroes. They're definitely heroes. In fact, what they remind me of uh, are errant knights. They remind me of people who have had to do horrific things, but in the end, they end up serving a, a greater good, even maybe um, unbeknownst to them. So um, they make their way slowly to Little Heaven to find her nephew. And along the way, they end up running into the most horrific, horrific vanguards of what kind of walks behind the uh, the religious uh, sect that lives back there. Anyhow, uh, in this case, it's... It's just wonderful. It's wonderful when uh, when you get to when you get to the 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 things that stand in their way, the things that kind of pluck at their tents in the middle of the night and look out from behind the trees and uh, and there are things that they they can't be sure are real. In some cases, uh, Eb hurts his ankle really badly, so he. He's half delirious from the pain, and so he uh, he doesn't quite believe what's real. And it reminds me a lot. And they it, and this kind of goes into the, like the action and horror. This this whole the little heaven reminded me of uh, a lot of books where action is a part of the of the story, but in the end, everything's surrounded by this level of horror and terror and and. Um, and a lot of, a lot of creature, uh, creepy crawl, crawlies, things like that. Um, I'm not so sure I want to go much farther than this in explaining what's going on, but this they are making their way towards the, uh, towards the moment of truth, and what they find in Little Heaven that ends up dogging their footsteps 15 years later. And uh, and wants a reckoning. Um, Mark Reynolds, what's up, dude? I'm glad you make it out, man. Uh, he's really pumped about the creeping coffin next week, uh, which is cool. Unfortunately, we don't have the peanut butter goosebumps, uh, do we? The goosebumps uh, choosing an adventure, something about peanut butter. I can't remember what. But uh, the. The villain is incredibly villainous. I think that's one thing that kind of... This book is fun. And it's creepy. And it's recognizable. Uh, there's nothing in it that, that makes you think, oh, this is so far-fetched that I can't even imagine. Except, um, hopefully, you never come across uh, some of the denizens of the forest. Which actually reminded me a lot of... Um, the Gunslinger, which comes back around to, uh, that's not on there. 
Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. He's 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 like, oh shit! I gotta bring stuff up. Um, no, I. Uh, when he said Dracula earlier, I was like, well, I fucked that up. No, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. No, I'll just do him in the series. Basically, he. Uh, I'm talking to Andrew. I've got a lot of uh, visual aids to come up with the action and horror stuff, but this is one of those uh, instances where. If someone's looking for a subtle villain, you're not going to find it here. This is definitely one of those villains that are beyond any sort of humanity. And it makes me think of a lot of um, a lot of stories of horror where you can easily put religious zealots and horror together. I mean, it, it kind of um, it resonates and it echoes the Jim Joneses and David Koresh and things like that where it seems like where these uh these nexus points happen where people like kind of found their churches i don't know if there's some sort of ley line that, that runs through there that could also um uh, pierce the veil of darkness things like that or maybe it has to do with these utter um i, I don't want to necessarily say sheep i don't get political with it but it seems like when you have these minions uh it could so much more easily become um a minion of, of evil. Um, because there's a fine line, especially when you come to the otherworldly. If, you, if you're in a place where you need two people to know that a God is there, uh, I mean, it could just, it could, you know, easily be something else at the same time. Especially since when you look at Flesher, he's horrible. There's no redeeming qualities to this guy whatsoever, which I think... Um, a lot of critics would would pan as being lazy, especially in the 21st century. You gotta have your sympathetic villains, and I love me some sympathetic villains, but I also long for the time of really horrific villains too. So I was not disappointed with Amos Flesher. Uh, he is horrible. Uh, at one point. Like I said, I want to. I don't want to give too much, but just as an example, um, and this is yet another flashback, but it doesn't. It doesn't change year. It's just like within the the narrative that he talks about uh, finding out about what it means to control people when he was in an orphanage and um, he was put in charge of what they called jo- uh, God's children, which is to say, in that in this case, uh, the megacephalics and. Uh, and and people with different um, genetic abnormalities, things like that. And uh, he found out what it was like to stick him with pins just for the fun of it, you know. And it's horrific, uh, which which counts because you have this person who uh, who wants to bring enlightenment to these people, but uh, it turns out real quickly that what what he has in mind for them isn't anywhere near uh, what it means to uh, do unto others you'd have them do unto you. It's much, much, much darker than that. So what we have in this is um, three people who had done ill, done evil, uh, usually at the, the bidding of others, payment of others, who find themselves in a place where they have to uh, defend themselves and defend others against this terrible, powerful thing. And 
it comes back and there are there are turning points and there are victories and there are defeats and sometimes even in their own memory um when micah finds ebenezer after everything had gone on and and a decade later he's a shell of what he used to be and in a lot of ways they all have uh varying levels of leaving what they were behind whether it's uh, leaving you know leaving the body uh, leaving their skill just becoming a husk or in micah's case starting anew and becoming a different man in having a family and so the jump the jumping back and forth they uh there are it's considered like parts where they they show you the difference and to me i didn't find it clunky at all i i ended up having a really great time with it and i found that the the kind of callbacks to the greatest hits of horror the greatest hits of uh, of different books movies television shows all that kind of stuff i found out that it was so ingrained in the dna of the story that it didn't um it didn't really hit me over the head at all uh in fact after i had seen some of the reviews and stuff i went around looking for it and i didn't think that it did it any um any more noticeably than anything else does i think that sometimes this push for nostalgia and this hatred of nostalgia and um all this kind of thing where people say that, you know, we're just all the, the references, the Easter eggs, the callbacks to different things. Um, I think that they see it as never having happened in the history of, of anything. And the truth is, is that it happens all the time because you have that love of, um, you have that love of trope. And, uh, in some, in some ways, you know, cliche, even some people are looking around for the comfortable, uh, notes and, um, and reverberations and mirrorings of stuff that they had seen in the past, as long as it's not so overt and so, um, obvious that you end up having to, uh, I, I watched this massive critique. I totally recommend Mauler, M-A-U-L-E-R. I recommend Mahler. If you want a thorough critique of the Star Wars uh, movies, I recommend that guy. I think that it's it's something like 15 hours worth. A lot of people would see that daunting and unnecessary. I find it fantastic. But in his case, um, it's basically a question of whether or not your enjoyment of the film hinges on those things or is enhanced by it if it ends up being an ingredient of the whole mess or if it ends up being a, a, um, a condiment. So to me, I didn't see this stuff at all. And if anything, it's in this grand tradition of the, the horror Western. And I'm going to leave a little heaven there just so there are a lot of things that are best left unexplained uh, about the book because when you come across it, it definitely, uh, Nick Cutter, um, if they are saying that this is an evolution of his work, I would definitely say that, um, it's, it's very, very smooth. Uh, it isn't as if it's this massive, um, trumpeting, thundering change in what he does. If, in fact, uh, I really liked the troop, um, 
but I do think that there are a lot of things that are um, that are weaved in here a little bit more deftly than before. So I can definitely say that um, with Little Heaven, it was a total blast. Um, and there are things there are things to be lost, and there are things to be things to be won by these characters. And the whole book reminded me um, we'd actually watched the Mummy Returns, uh, the Mummy and the Mummy Returns the other day, and it. Uh, Troop came out first, Emily. As far as I know, I think that uh, the Troop came out before Little Heaven. Um, but when we were watching that movie, all I could think of is, you know, it seems like most of the uh, heroes taking on the horror, it seems like that's really based in um, in horror books from the 1800s. And it kind of it took shape again in the 70s. Uh, but usually on a more personal level. And then uh, in the 90s, it really kicked into gear. But almost uh, almost at the end of the, of the horror life on the shelves in grocery stores and, and whatnot. Um, which is a shame. Because I remember that really, um, really intensely. I remember going to the grocery store and seeing... Uh, Brian Lumley's Necroscope. It seems like I was I saw that everywhere, and a friend of mine who actually uh, he became a pretty great writer, and w- and I did the his his book as my first uh, entry. I remember him turning me on to Robert McCammon. Uh, we were we were in home ec class, and he had Stinger, Robert McCammon book, and you see this reptilian hand like coming out of this desert wasteland and it seemed like McCammon was really big on for that too but I have to say there seems to be a long tradition of this as I was looking up stuff for this uh, uh, a lot of things came to me and a lot of things became real clear and and uh, and resonated with that and now for whatever reason I would say that the greatest examples end up showing up in movies and television. But it's as simple as looking back to, you know, some of the most famous stories that have ever existed. Um, and the greatest heroes and some of the greatest villains, too. Uh, when it comes to especially, and, I, you know, I hadn't thought about this before, and then it came to me, like, who, who's one of the greatest heroes of all time, and what did he go after? And it turns out that it was a monster, and it wasn't in a sort of mythological way. Um, there were definitely, his, him and his band were definitely set upon, and they had to go out and kill it before it killed them. And it wasn't uh, an enemy of, uh, of, of normal human weapon. Uh, it was a creature, and in that we find just the absolute basis of horror. So, um, when I thought of Beowulf, it definitely it brought Grendel to mind, and I saw the the Beowulf film, and that always seemed to me like a I don't know a real downplayed, and maybe it was a meta type of thing where they were trying to to make it seem like it could have happened now rather than being something of the fantastical. And that's kind of a, not necessarily a problem, but I think that it comes up a lot for whatever reason. I was noticing that 
when you're talking of this this idea of the horror western um when you say when it, when you involve the western in it there's no question it almost always ends up being considered horror but when um when you delve into something that you know might include crime or detection or um I guess kind of the gumshoe type of approach towards things and ends up being called fantasy. So I don't know exactly how that shakes out. Um, if I really don't know, I mean, what are your, what are your guys' thoughts on this when it comes to the horror Western? I mean, <clears throat> as far as I can tell, uh, I don't think anyone ever, I mean, later on, I'd say the gunslinger series delved more into fantasy but um i would say that the first gunslinger at least was massively horror based um and fantasy comes when when you start throwing everything in the kitchen sink in there i think that, that that's when that normally happens but um just as simple as you know one of the the absolute most popular ever done when you think of dracula at the basis of that book you have these um I guess you'd say kind of Avengers that that go out to try to hunt the demon, if you call him the demon, um, the seducer of women and and uh, maker of minions who steal children for food and all that kind of stuff, unkillable, undying creatures, um, the cowboy and the uh, the dandy and the doctor. I mean, when you when you think of these, this group, this trio of Avengers going out to to find the Count and his brides in the castle, um, that sounds like that like knights again. But there's no question of it being a horror book. So, um, badassery has existed uh, almost since the very beginning, if you think about it, and there are definite. Uh, explanations of action in those you you can't have a cowboy involved in a in a vampire hunt without a little bit of action involved so pointless redemption is a horror western comedy does that count sure and um yeah there's so many as soon as i started going through this um all i could think of was oh my god it seems like it, it's translated to movies so easily. Um, and speaking of movies, uh, one of the the books that I was thinking of was a movie, and I ended up uh, I was it was it was cool because I ended up being um, familiar with the books before I was the movie, uh, and all this stuff all this stuff came out in you know way before I was born, and so it's neat when you can kind of discover something before it's spoiled by a, a film adaptation but the devil rides out by dennis wheatley dennis wheatley ended up doing um a whole crop of supernatural i don't know i guess you call it like leisure supernatural leisure gothics or something like that where it definitely has to do with uh normal life but not necessarily the uh the lower class, it, it kind of had like an upper class sensibility about it and a pulpy, pulpy feel. 
But uh, that ends up having to do with uh, uh, a Lord. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, though. But Christopher Lee plays him in the film, and I totally recommend the film The Devil Rides Out for, for anybody. It rocked. And it definitely had that kind of um, villain on the run quality that the mummy had, uh, too. Where you have this established villain and does all kinds of nefarious deeds, usually kind of with a flavor of uh, corruption and, you know, taking people from their normal lives and, um, and showing them that evil does exist and, uh, and it can corrupt you towards horrific things to gain power and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it ended up cropping up everywhere I looked. I mean, um, one of my big, big favorites, uh, was Solomon Kane, Robert E. Howard, Solomon Kane, which is like this Puritan, um, I don't know if you'd call him a warrior. Like I, I mean, he, he went around to different villages and it's kind of that whole thing about like finding the horror in, um, pre-colonial America, something like that. Um, Oh, Angela. Yeah. You doing a Wheatley for the black books. Uh, check out black, uh, black books club, AKA the mask of the red book club. Um, yeah, you definitely need to do a Wheatley. There are so many to choose from. But uh, Solomon Kane was this fantastically unique character of the uh, the staunchly religious uh, Avenger, and he has a he has a real. It's one of those Old Testament type of. Um, he's got a real Old Testament feel to him, where uh, he will cut sin out. So. Uh, it's fantastic. And the movie ended up being a lot better than I expected. And I waited for it for a long time. But uh, seeking out demons in, in their burrows uh, in in that type of lands. And I, I guess you could, um, I don't know, I, I guess you might be able to put Silver John in there. Um, hmm. Man, mainly uh, Wade Wellman. It's hard to say. Uh, that, that might be a, a genre unto itself. But uh, when it comes to the the kind of, as you go along, it kind of goes more towards um, almost like the action hero as a horror slayer type of thing. And um, the first one that comes to mind always for me is The Tomb from F. Paul Wilson. Repairman Jack is the ultimate in this line of thinking um, for as much as he ends up, you know, that's in there too, Andrew. I know. Um, we're on a little bit of a lag, but um, whenever I think of, whenever I think of horror action and horror and horror as an action film, I always think of the tomb because it, it had the most, like, in fact, the, the cover that I gave to him is probably one of the most lurid covers for that I've ever seen. And I've never had one with this cover, but um, I liked it, so I picked it. Um, but it's so strange what's happened with the the Repairman Jack marketing uh, of the character. In the very beginning, when the tomb came out, um, it was one of those uh, one of those things. And Robert McCann, that happened to him too. 
I don't think it happens much with Stephen King except for the typeface. It seems like uh, the Stephen King typeface was all over everything, but it, the covers were pretty individualized. But um, with uh, with the tomb, it came out with this strange green and yellow cover, and it was kind of subdued, and people didn't know quite what to think of it. And then you have a cover like this that shows this altar and uh, maybe the promise of a human sacrifice and stuff. And it's really interesting the way it turns out because Repairman Jack is just a... I wouldn't call him a normal guy, but he is definitely just a guy who has, you know, certain skills and he's off the grid. It's basically a character that wouldn't find its footing for, for years and years and years. Now it seems like you see him all the time, which kind of sucks because once, once you try to turn someone onto the tomb, they're like, Oh, this guy's kind of sounds familiar, but it might be because, you know, he's been copied so many times by people who wanted to keep him under wraps. But then when you find out that Stephen King is the repairman, Jack fan club president it's difficult to keep it under wraps, but I totally recommend it. I don't want to give too much away, but basically he repairman. Jack is a guy who solves problems. And when it turns out that a, a mystical element is brought into, um, brought into his, his contracted lives, um, it's really, really weird and it's really fun and, uh, totally action packed at the same time. So I would say that it's probably one of the, one of the best, um, evolutions of this, of this type. And it kind of like ushers in some other things, uh, some other <clears throat> characters and other novels that were to come uh, later. I think that this came out in the seventies. And, you know, I ended up talking about it once upon a time uh, at the very beginning of Diabolical Index. And I got really pissed off because uh, it was uh, it was a thing where it had come out in the 70s and it was re-released. And uh, when he started making sequels to it, which people have been clamoring for, uh, he he changed some uh, some dates and some important things to it. So I got kind of pissed off. So in my opinion, if you if you can find the tomb in its original form, uh, it's a lot better. It might be slightly confusing when the update happens, uh, in legacies. It was the second book that came out, you know, a decade and some later, maybe more, maybe two decades, but one that definitely comes to mind for me, which is ton of fun. And that's definitely when the, with the action variety of horror, they're always fun. Always. I've never been through one that was real super ponderous or anything. Um, but then again, I mean, I haven't read the Dresden Files, so it's tough to say. But I've, I've seen a lot of people like those and like the, the Simon Green. Um, I don't know if it's called Nightscape or what. But it's it's kind of that. Um, I might be getting those mixed up. He's Simon Green's got two, two or more series. And it's that whole, you know, detective finding out that his uh his mark or his uh his client has something to do with the the occult and the other side all that type of jazz it's always so much fun but when it comes to kind of like mercenaries on the side of good uh even in this case you know uh issued by the the um the catholic church vampires by john steakley and uh, you know 
you're going to see that the, the SN vampires tells you all you need to know about this crew of guys. Um, it's fantastic. They ended up making a, a movie about this too, but much like a lot of the movie adaptations, they, um, they really reduced <laughs> some of the, the daring do and some of the, um, the epic heights that these guys got into, but it was such a, uh, vampires was such a down and dirty, no nonsense, uh, vampire hunter story. I love it. And so few people, uh, have, have read this one in particular. A lot of his other books are more popular, but like I said, this became a movie. So John Carpenter, uh, got interested in at some point and, um, it's weird. It's one of those like Jack Reacher things where in the book, the guy is like bigger than life. He's like almost seven feet tall and all this kind of jazz. And for whatever reason, when they decide to put him in the film, he's just a normal sized guy, which I can't, I, I know you can't get away with that a whole lot of times, but I mean, Jason Momoa does exist now. So, um, the most modern, or I guess the most recent one that I think of and, uh, I guess, you know, I Am Legend is kind of in that camp, too, where you have maybe someone who uh, is in this position because they're a survivor uh, of of the coming, you know, of the the curtain of, of evil that's, like, dropped, dropped down over the world. And um, so they're kind of, like, thrust into it against their will. And I guess you kind of have that with everything where you you have a character who wouldn't have been there if not for, you know, circumstances beyond their control. And they end up finding that some skill or occupation or vocation that they had in the, uh, normal frame of, of everything ends up serving them well in this weird afterlife, uh, embroiled in this, this horrific battle against evil for one, for one, uh, reason or another. And, you can't really call um, you can't call the character in uh, I Am Legend. It's difficult to call him proactive. I mean, I guess he's um, I would say he's reactive because all these things have happened around him, and he just he's had to kind of dig his way um, out of it. <laughs> oh God, Mark Reynolds thrusting into the curtain of evil. Um, Oh God, Ben! Don't bring up the damn dog. Oh, that was one of the. Oh my God, I was bawling like. And, and no, okay, forget it. I'm not talking about the dog. That could spoil stuff. But anyhow, um, definitely in that. Uh, I can't remember his name. Robert Neville. I think his name is Robert Neville in that book. But um, fantastic character. And, uh, I think that that's, I don't know. I, I think that that may have started a few things off. Um, I think that the most recent one that I can think of, and there's been tons of sequels to it. And there was one that was kind of like it, um, called Bureau 13 by Nick Pilata. I like Bureau 13 a lot. I found out it was a game that the books came from, but, uh, fun times. But the one that's most recent that I had a, a ball with was Monster Hunter International by Larry Correa. Or I guess it's Korea. It might be Korea. Um, absolute balls to the wall. 
action. Uh, I almost said film again. That's just what it's like when you kind of when you get into these areas uh, and arenas where you learn more about guns just by reading. And at least in my case, I learned more about guns by reading Monster Hunter International than anything I've ever read before. Um, it is not a western whatsoever. It is a, <laughs> I mean, total action horror, which kind of like lends itself to the, um, the video game. I would say that video games have kind of been the, uh, the bastion of, of action horror. Uh, oh, sorry, Emily. I'm, when I throw things out, I, I think that she's trying to get after it and, and find out about as much. Okay. I had spoken about this before. I'm thinking about doing a, um, a Diabolical Index blog companion, kind of like, you know, what I went through in the episodes and stuff to kind of accompany the episode. So if someone is interested in something I spoke about or need to know where to find it or don't want to comb through the entire, um, the entire episode or what have you, I think, and actually additional stuff, annotations, uh, different things like that. Um, I think that I'm going to try to make that happen. It'll be a lot of work, but, um, I might just do it. So we'll see what happens. Oh God. Robin singing Sarah McLaughlin now. I'm not going to make it. I'm just not going to make it. Um, okay. Yeah. So anyway, Monster Hunter International, totally fantastic, bombastic, uh, penoplastic. No, penoplastic. That comes from G.I. Joe, the movie. Not the live action movie, by God, the animated one with Sergeant Slaughter in it. Anyhow. Um, but yeah, it's uh, they have some of the best, funnest creatures known to man. They do it all. In fact, this is, I guess this one might venture into the fantasy. There are a lot of horror elements, but there are also a lot of fantasy elements to the series as well. <clears throat> like um these <laughs> I think if I remember correctly they they're called the G's and they end up being these like hood gnomes and they I think they're like weapons dealers or something like that it's it's fantastic but you will not be disappointed uh if you read Monster Hunter International Vendetta uh Alpha I think there are like eight, uh, eight, uh, sequels now, but there are actually patches, uh, military patches for monster hunter, um, groups from every state. As far as I know, fantastic. It's totally awesome. Um, so yeah, there was one that I read and I, I don't want to go through too many of these, but I think the final one I was thinking of was one called Red Law by uh, Lovegrove. It's a he's a British horror author, and I think that he's uh, gotten a lot of uh, gotten a lot of interest in some of his more sci-fi based horror out of uh, Great Britain. But um, Red Law, I think, is a good place to stop because um, 
with that, you have that one too. If you want to bring it over, um, it's definitely this old grizzled Clint Eastwood type. Uh, except like I said, he's, it's, it's an, a British hero and, um, it's just a cop that hates vampires and the vampires, uh, come in all shapes and sizes and creeds and colors. And, um, and I guess you'd say affiliations in this book as well. It's definitely not something where, uh, you get the run of the mill, in any of the characters, the, the cops or the, um, I guess the, the vampire immigration people and some of the ones that are underground, some of the ones that are more, uh, in the public eye. It's, it's great. And there was a, um, there's a sequel as well. And the, the strange part, and I guess it's kind of ironic, but, um, it takes place. They come over to America in the second one and, for whatever reason, it didn't have the same flavor for me. But I definitely recommend Red Law by Love Grove. It's a lot of fun. So, it's just a question of, will this... Um, is TV and movies, are they the, the reason why this has kind of come back to... Come back into flavor again? I think that little... I think a lot of times when it comes to action horror stuff i think that it can be underestimated i think that a lot of people see it as um fluff like when you're going through the uh the checkout line when they have the uh the impulse buys and you'll see you know some sort of a psychops novel or whatever like that and you and you'll see that there's there's some kind of cop with the with a link to the occult and i think it's kind of the uh I guess you could say it's almost a little bit of the fallout from the supernatural romance craze. Because it seems like they always had a um, a vein of action. Vein of action. I know you like that, Mark. Um, running through their, their stuff, too. Um, so maybe it's a byproduct of that. And, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Supernatural, all that kind of things. It's difficult to get away from the, the action horror genre when it comes to that medium, definitely. Because it's just fun. I mean, especially since, you know, the action hero um, kind of transcends the genre as it is, uh, especially when you think of, like, Ash Williams and all that kind of jazz. But um, I think that was totally unexpected, that that would have happened the way it did. But uh, that doesn't mean you sh- you can discount him. He's he's probably one of the best in the business, if I had to guess. Especially when it comes like the old ones and Lovecraftian uh, stuff. But uh, let's see. Let's see what people are saying here. What we do in the shadows, I still haven't checked that out yet. I'm such a moron. I've had that movie in my possession for like a year now. And now the show's out and I haven't checked out any of it. But I'm always late to the party. Always always late to the party good god i think everybody's drunk already they're talking about like weird impulse buys in the in the store but yeah so uh i guess when it comes down to it i i'm a big fan of the 70s uh horror genre when it comes to i mean there were so many paperbacks that uh 
that I found along the way, Graham Masterson, and um, I was thinking of the one called The Gin, and the ending of that book is, I was gobsmacked, and I think that that was more along the lines of um, defense, not necessarily attack, where you have, you know, a guy getting embroiled in in, in some sort of family uh a mystical family um, vendetta or something like that. And he ends up having to protect people and all that kinds of stuff. So I guess that's kind of on the outskirts of this, but good God, the end of that, it, it had one of the, one of the most gruesomely shocking endings that of any, it's one of the, those books where you open it, you read it and you're just like, Oh man. Like you don't even know what to do. You're just kind of like stuck there just rereading the same page over and over again because you just cannot believe what just happened. Graham Masterson, the gin, uh, whether or not, um, <laughs> whether or not I can't even remember how good the rest of the book was, but I got through it. Um, I'm not a gigantic one for slogging through books that I don't like because there are just so many, the stack is so massively huge that, if I waited around for stuff to, to interest me, uh, I would never get anything done. But hey, now, you know, oh, I almost, oh no, I can't say it. Okay, I'll say it. While we're on the subject of Tim Wagner, um, <laughs> guys, I can't help it. I started reading, I started reading the prologue uh, in the grip of the dark. And, um, for whatever reason, I, uh, it's going to take a lot for me to pick that book back up again. Um, I talked to Emily about this not too long ago for whatever reason. Um, I'm not a gigantic fan of an author telling you what just happened and then telling you what you should feel about what just happened. Um, and you know, maybe, uh, Maybe it's something that kind of fades away, but, uh, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, mm. what I call it. Oh, the mouth of the dark. Sorry. Pardon me. The mouth of the dark or the dark of the mouth or whatever it was. I don't know. I can't remember now, but whatever it was, that prologue just did not do it for me. So I guess there are. You know, there's a pretty awesome group of humans that are still moving through it and enjoying it. So I might just keep going. But I mean, at some point, if the prologue doesn't grab you, what's the prologue there for? Is it supposed to be giving you information that you could have gotten throughout the rest of the body of the, the story? Um, is it providing you with information that'll come up later? I don't even know. But, uh, I know, I know, Ben Sr. It's just, a, I don't know, it's it's a question of, yeah, it's only 200 pages. But, <laughs> I don't, I, okay, okay, I, I've, maybe I didn't quite mean to cause such a stir about this with the, uh, with my audience here tonight. The, the Black Books crew are in full effect tonight. 
and they are currently reading a Tim Wagner book for their next, um, for the next book club. So, um, I'm, I'm not trying to insult the guy. I'm sure he's fantastic. In fact, I got, I got a couple of his books at home that I haven't even uh, started reading yet. But um, that prologue, for whatever reason, it really threw me off. So I suppose that um, I should give it another chance. If so many of you are uh, are singing his praises, I, I probably need to get through the damn prologue. Or maybe I should just skip the prologue. Maybe I'll skip the prologue, go straight into the heart of the book, and see what happens from there. Um, I have been wrong before. I have been wrong before. And, <laughs> hey, I think that he can, I, I think that he, you know, if if he is as widespread as I, I think he is, I think that he ought to know his criticisms by now. Um, and I'm not saying that the book is a total loss. All I'm saying is, is that for whatever reason, and I know what the reasons are, and I kind of explain them, sort of, but it just felt like in a lot of ways it was this strange, um, it was a strange thing where it was telling me, it told me everything. Like it, it didn't leave, um, it didn't leave any sort of um, relatability in question there, where you might get something from uh from a a page of a a prologue or a narrative or a character study or whatever it may get you uh in somewhere that the author hasn't experienced so why that just seems to you know put a limit on it immediately whereas you could you could kind of infer stuff yourself and it might be more uh more appealing to you and more resonant with you in this case, it seemed like there were at least a couple of instances where it told you exactly what was happening and it told you exactly what you're supposed to get from that. Which, maybe that's required. Maybe um, some people appreciate it. Whatever it is, it struck me wrong. Um, so, I'll give it another shot. Maybe. I'm uh I I don't want to um I don't want to rain on the parade if I haven't even, you know, seen who the uh the flag core. I don't know. That analogy that analogy fell off. Um, <laughs> majorettes. I don't want to rain on the parade until I see what the majorettes look like. That's better, I guess. I don't know. Something. Who knows? But anyways, um, hopefully, <laughs> it's been really super tangential. But basically, um, I um, I think that the action horror genre uh, is is totally never going away. It's it's so much fun, and it uh, it kind of leads you. I think that action can be used as a definite. Um, I don't want to say distraction. But maybe um, misdirection, where you can be, you know, kind of engrossed in the action part of it, and then when you realize that you're in the middle of a horrific situation, when it comes to horror as a uh, as a visceral uh, thing beyond the human or whatever like that, I think that 
when it comes to the horror, uh, the action and horror, I think that it can lead you into thinking that um, everything is going to end up fine. Someone may end up dead, but their soul isn't going to be changed or their, uh, their human form isn't going to be mutated by the, uh, by whatever the enemy is and all that fantastic um, stuff that can happen within the confines of a horror story. And so much fun, especially when uh, someone comes out changed. So it's awesome, especially if you can find uh, an action hero in these that isn't so invincible. I think that's kind of where somebody mentioned Blade earlier, and I think that's where Blade falls short. When you have uh, a character that um, a character that is really hard to kill, really hard to best. All of the uh, all the original um, weaknesses that existed are taken away, or written away, or just kind of made convenienced. All that type of stuff. And then when you get rid of a lot of that stuff, some sometimes it it rings a little bit hollow. But um, a lot of people think action is hollow to begin with. So yeah, uh, give me your thoughts on that. If I've forgotten any, uh, let me know. Uh, on those things i'm sure that i've forgotten a lot of them but hopefully within the um the horror novel community uh, i haven't i mean one that i could have brought up was uh, the wolf's hour by robert uh, mccammon i I bring up mccammon a lot but the wolf's hour comes to mind i mean werewolf in nazi germany can't beat that with a stick i'm actually um it is terrifying that they haven't made that into a, a movie yet but anyway, check it out yourself. I mean, uh, go out and try these books. Um, maybe I will attempt. I, I have a lot of these. Um, I sent all those covers to him. So I might try to do kind of like a fledgling um, a fledgling companion to this episode. It depends. I don't know. It was a rough day. I ordered a $4 British Oh. Well... You guys would be happy to hear that. Andrew, uh, just the uh, Choose Your Own Adventures? Wow. Did you find the peanut butter one? Oh! And uh, an internet one. Oh, man. And a talking toy one. Fantastic. And the oh, don't give them all away. Don't give them all away. And the first one. Um, okay, so this just in. Uh, Andrew Moore, the uh, fantastic, inimitable Andrew Moore, has just notified me that he has ordered four more uh, Goosebumps Choose Your Own Adventure books. So, uh, I'm telling you, this is becoming a thing. Uh, yeah, the Andrew Moore fan club just uh, just arrived. Emily is the, the, <laughs> is the president. So, there you go. Actually, uh, Mark from uh, Pointless Discussions was asking me if, if the peanut butter one was next. I was like, no, we haven't got that one, but uh, we might now. So we'll see what happens with that. Anyway, definitely, um, if you like Choose Your Own Adventure, speaking of that, definitely come out June 26th. It's a Wednesday at 8 p.m. Go to the Kelletop Brew House in Anderson, Indiana to check out Choose Your Own Adventure, an improvised story where um, I think we're going to start out with some sort of framework. I think I might be in charge of that. God help me. 
And then uh, as it goes along, I think that we're going to have people make choices and then they're going to improvise their next moves as it goes along. So um, this is going to be memorable for sure. Um, Memorable in a good way? Hard to say. I don't know. Maybe we won't even, maybe it'll be memorable um, on video and we won't remember a thing. Hard to say. Takes place in a bar. I uh, I usually get drunk on my own uh, imagination, but I might need a little bit of liquid courage, liquid courage that night. We'll see. I don't know. Uh, I might end up being the Rod Serling of the whole thing. We'll see what happens. But, yep, like I said, June 26th, 8 p.m., Kelltop Brew House in Anderson, Indiana. Make sure to make it out if you can. I, uh, I don't know if Natalie's still here or not. Uh, Natalie's sinister sweetheart. She said um, that she's going. That would mean going from Florida to Anderson, Indiana. That would really be something if she ended up doing that. So that would be wild. Um, And, yeah, I mean uh, – Everyone is welcome. I would love to see you all there. And like I said before, you know, you normally get to hear us making fools of ourselves. Uh, in this case, you get to actually see us make fools of ourselves. But then again, I guess you guys see me make a fool of myself almost every Monday. But I've been trying to keep it going. Um, I have slacked in the past. I have had uh, hiatuses. I think that's the plural for that. Hiatuses. Uh, but I've been trying to keep it going as much as possible. And do not forget, I don't know if you have an image for this either, but um, Saturday, special edition. We are bringing in Betty Rocksteady from Perpetual Motion Printing or Publishing. Perpetual Motion Publishing Machine. What am I saying? Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing. Um with the writhing sky, this is horror winner, novella of the year from last year, and um, all kinds of stuff in the works. Her new collection is called "In Dreams We Rot," so definitely show up uh, Saturday at eight p.m. Or sorry, excuse me, Saturday seven p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, she's from Nova Scotia, so we had to to finagle that just slightly. It'll be much earlier than normal, and it'll be on a Saturday. We'll see how it works out. But uh, I've been talking to her a lot. She's she's very, very super cool. She um, she likes a lot of Betty Boop stuff and um, and kind of like the the Bosco old school Cuphead type of art. Yeah, dude, it's it's awesome. And I think that she um, she has a lot of that aesthetic going on in her own drawings. She I think she did the cover for. Um, Two of them, like Jagged Teeth and uh, and The Writhing Sky. I think she did the the illustrations for both of those things. So, yeah, check out uh, Diabolical Index Special Interview Edition uh, this Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and then right back in for the, uh, the non-entry Choose Your Own Adventure that Monday. So it's going to be a pretty decently uh, stocked week ahead. So, as always, thanks for showing up tonight. Beware your human heart, for this is the Diabolical Index, where the pages of the uncanny reside for June 3rd, 2019. I remembered it this time. I am up on my game. 
And uh, speaking of being up on your game, thanks for the Black Books crew, as always. Hopefully uh, nobody's going to get arrested. Don't operate any uh, moving vehicles or heavy machinery. Uh, thanks to Mark Reynolds for stopping by. And Mel, as always. Nally was here. Uh, Mr. Gully. I know I'm forgetting somebody. Josh DeForge. Um, check out uh, Josh DeForge's new short, He Is No Man, at uh, Running Scared Motion Pictures. And uh, as always, in case I forgot to mention it, stay squirrely. <laughs>